Let us just ask the Lord's blessing on his word. Heavenly Father, as we come to study again in your word, we just pray that you would bless us with understanding, guide us in truth, and protect us from error. May we grow to know and love you more for your glory and for our good. Amen. Well, we get to come back to the book of Job, and those of you who were here uh, last week had some of my the first couple chapters here in the book, and we kind of continue today. And we're going to study and look in this section at what some of the wisest people in the world in Job's day said about the problem of pain, the problem of suffering, continuing to explore the great questions, is God really good, and why do bad things happen to good people? I just want to read a couple of the verses at the end of chapter 2 and the introduction to chapter 3. So if you look with me at chapter 2 and and verse 11, you'll see what Job says, or what Job's friends say here. Now, when Job's three friends heard all the evils, the disasters that had come upon him, they came each from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuite, Zophar the Namathite, and they made an appointment together to come and to show him sympathy and comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads towards heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him. For they saw that his suffering was very great. And after this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth and said, Let the day perish on which I was born. Now, if your friend said to you, I want to die because God has made my life miserable. Every moment I live is pain. Or... I'm terribly afraid because that which I dread has come upon me. What would you tell them? Wisdom for these very dark and challenging moments in life doesn't really come naturally in this world. We don't have the answers. But in these central dialogues of Job, the greatest of wisdom, the greatest of observational, experiential, natural, and spiritual wisdom is kind of brought out to try to show a way in which we can at least think about these questions. Now, I had this experience when I first started in ministry, which was almost 20 years ago, which seems crazy. I was fresh out of seminary, and I had an opportunity to go, and now you guys know uh, Lyle Richards, I think, or at least some of you do. So I had an opportunity to go and do an internship with him right when I first was graduating. It was part of my final part of my MDiv. So I went and spent a year with him working in his church. And as we were there working together, he started to introduce me to different areas of ministry. And one of the very earliest things we had was a strange phone call out of the blue from some parents who were out of town whose son was serving in the military and who had just returned from overseas and who was in very rough shape and was in the hospital. 
in an ICU unit and wondered if we could go and pay him a pastoral visit. So off we went. We went to the hospital and we went in and introduced ourselves to the staff and were brought in to see him. We were told that at the moment he was unconscious and they weren't aware of how far in and out of consciousness he was. In other words, they weren't even really sure if he would hear or know that we were there. But he might. So we walked into the room and uh, in, in the particular place that we were in there, because it was ICU, there were kind of little isolated rooms and you walked in the little tiny room. We were standing at the foot of the bed and we looked at this guy lying in there. Lyle was my grandfather. Lyle looked at me and he said, so, what do you want to share with him? <laughs> and I thought, oh, uh, hi? I was completely clueless. I stood there in complete silence and he just let the silence sit. I think he probably enjoyed it. After a minute or two, he said, uh, why don't you read him a psalm? Oh, yeah, okay, that's a good idea. So I grabbed my Bible and thought, well, which psalm do you read to a severely wounded unconscious guy? Uh, you know, the natural one is... <laughs> well, I thought it through, and I ended up just reading uh, Psalm uh, 8 and, and just talking, reading it over, and then just talking about the Lord Jesus for a little while and then praying with them. And then we left, and I thought, well, I don't know. I felt completely useless. But sometimes, even when we don't have the answers, having compassion and pointing people to the Lord is the right thing. We're going to look today at this huge swath from the book of Job, and I appreciate that it can only be a survey. But as we're doing it, we're looking at all these different dialogues, and, and really, if we don't want to miss the forest through the trees, the real answer is when... When we are with someone who is suffering, we want to comfort them, and we want to point them to God where the true answers come from. But many have found that it's helpful just to think through suffering. It, it, just talking about it actually sort of breaks away some of the taboos and helps us to sort of wrestle with the idea that this is a normal condition in life. Everybody suffers. This is normal. And so we can think about it a little bit. Sometimes it helps us. There was a great thinker named Boethius at the end of the classical period. He's a Christian thinker, uh, but he was writing right as the Roman Empire had collapsed and everything was kind of going, going apart. And, and he was sentenced to death by one of the last emperors. And as he was waiting to die, he wrote a book. And the book was called The Consolation of Philosophy. He didn't mean like an academic course at university. He meant a wise way of thinking through life. And he thought philosophically, as it were, about his faith, about his life, about law, about being put to death, and about what it would mean. And his book has become a classic that has helped many, many, many people in suffering simply because he thinks through the reality of suffering. And in many ways, that's what Job provides for us. So I hope that we can uh, kind of take this discussion that way and understand that it is aimed at helping us to think this through, understand this a little better, so that we can be people of comfort and compassion, and we can point people to God. And when inevitably we're the ones that are suffering, we have something with which we can minister to ourselves. The book of Hebrews tells us even of the Lord Jesus. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. In order to obey Christ, sometimes we have to go through some troubles. C.S. Lewis explains, pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks to us in our consciences, but shouts to us in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf 
world. Of course, my first thought, and maybe yours when you suffer, is not, oh, what can I learn from this? <laughs> I think, ah, I want out of this. And that's natural. That's, that's very human. We just remember Job now. He was a good man. We were told by the, the narrator, we were told by God himself that he was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. He is a good person. And when we see bad things happen to him, it's bad things happening to a good person. Yes, he's human, so of course he sinned and he had failures. It's not suggesting that. But he didn't do something that should really deserve these particular evils. Job really then works through how we can understand him. So structurally, we're going to go through three friends' dialogues. There are two sets of dialogues for each one. The friend speaks, Job answers. The friend speaks, Job answers. The friend speaks, Job answers. We kind of go through these three cycles, and we'll just do them really quickly, but just get the lesson out of them. Here is basically what we have. Job has his real negative speech. I'm going to read you one more portion from 3 verses 9 to 11. Job says to the world, let the stars of the dawn be dark. Let it hope for light, but have none, nor see the eyelids of the morning, because it did not shut the doors of my mother's womb, nor hide trouble from my eyes. Why did I not die at my birth and come out of my womb and expire? So the day, sorry, I should introduce that. It continues from what we read at the beginning. Let the day perish on what I was, when I was born. Let the stars of its dawn be dark. It's hope for light, but have none, nor see the eyelids of the morning, because it did not shut the doors of my mother's womb. He really does not want to be alive. He is in absolute, total anguish, and we have to understand that for everything in the rest of the book to make sense. He asks in verse 20, why is light, why is any light, why is life, that's what he's saying, why is light given to him who is in misery, and life to the bitter in soul, who long for death, but it comes not, and Desire for it more than hidden treasures. Why can't I just die? In verse 23, though, Job makes a really interesting thing. Why is light given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? So Job says, I'm going through all this tremendous suffering. And why has it happened? Because God has put suffering in front of me, beside me, and behind me. Up until now, he has always been very good to God. He's always said, let us have faith in God. Shall we not take good from God as well as evil? But now Job says, God has hedged me in suffering. Why does he keep me alive? Why does he keep me alive? In verses 24 and 25, he says, God has left him in sighings and groanings and living in fear and in dread. And his whole world has collapsed. In verse 26, he concludes, I am not at ease, nor am I quieted. I have no rest, but trouble comes. And Job's friends who have sat for seven days in silence finally hear from him. And what they hear probably breaks their hearts. But it also gets them to talking. <laughs> They're not quite so sure about all this stuff Job is saying. Wait, Job, <laughs> what do you mean you want to die? That's not the answer. This is a pretty live question today, isn't it? We're dealing with all of this. Right now, there's a bill before Parliament to expand the medical assistance and dying program and to allow it to be used for the handicapped, uh, mentally and physically, who are not dying but are judged to have not as good a quality of life as some might wish. 
There are uh, an introduction that would put minors, children, would have the opportunity to access it, and also to have instant access, that you can make a request and have it done more or less right away without any contemplation period. These are things that we should be aware of and praying of, and they're bigger issues in the world today. So the friends are hearing Job saying, I'm ready to go. If he was there today, there would be someone who would help him to do it. So we have the three friends, and each of them takes a different approach in what they're going to say to Job in his darkest hour. Eliphaz is a fascinating guy. He's the oldest. He seems to come with compassion, kind of kindliness, and we learn, I call him the dreamer, not, not like, uh, like uh, I have a dream of a fancy fun day, but he, he, sees, he, he dreams and he dreams of spiritual realities. Now, God speaks many times in Scripture through dreams and visions, but we're never given an indication in Job whether this is a true vision, whether it's from God or from some other uh, malevolent entity. We don't know. All we know is this is a person who has spiritual experiences and wisdom. And he speaks with some compassion. He says in chapter 4 and verse 2, Look, if one ventures a, a word with you, will you be impatient? But who can keep from speaking when they hear and see what you're doing? Behold, Job, you're supposed to be wise. You instructed many. You have strengthened weak hands. Your words have upheld him who is stumbling. You have made firm feeble knees. But now that it's come to you, you're impatient. It touches you, and you're dismayed. It is not, is not your fear of God your confidence and the integrity of the way your ways, your hope? Remember, Job, who is there that was innocent who ever perished? Were the upright ever cut off? Job, he says, okay, calm down. You've comforted many who have been in trouble. You, you, you've been very compassionate. Will you not remember how you helped others? Will you not remember the wisdom you passed on? And don't you know the bad things don't really happen to good people. Now, Eliphaz's wisdom really is born of real-world experience. He says in verse 8, It is as I have seen. Those who plow iniquity sow trouble, and sow trouble reap the same. Look, if people do this, they get their just reward. You must have reaped, plowed iniquity, and now you're reaping it. And then he says in verse 12, that a word was brought to me stealthily. My ear received a whisper of it amid thoughts from visions of night. I'm going to come back to his visions in a second speech. So let's just skip over that one and for, focus on his experience thing. And he gives Job some counsel all the way in chapter 5 now in verse 8. He says, Job, this is what I suggest to you. Sorry, verse 7 and 8. He says, man, man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upwards. That's the reality. So as for me, I would seek God, and to God would I commit my cause. Verse 17, he says, Blessed is the one that God reproves. Despise not, therefore, the discipline of the Almighty. Job, you, you must be being disciplined. No one who is good has these bad things happen to him. The Almighty won't do that to him. You must have iniquity. So if I were you... I would turn to God. Oh, people have trouble all the time. When they have trouble, they need to turn to God. This is the wisdom that I have learned through great experience in life. And you're blessed if God is reproving you because he is helping you move forward. The New Testament teaches the same thing, doesn't it? Do not despise the discipline of the Lord, it says in the book of Hebrews. 
But Job is a unique case. Eliphaz doesn't know, but God has already said in heaven, there is none like him on earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. At the end of verse two, chapter 2, verse 3, God says of Job, he still, despite all he has suffered, holds fast his integrity. He doesn't need to be disciplined or corrected, but Eliphaz doesn't know that. So Eliphaz here is saying something true, but applying it wrongly. This should humble us. We, we might know a good biblical truth here now, and we're with someone and we want to be compassionate to them. We say, well, I know what's going on. It's this and this and this. Well, maybe not. Still okay to explore it, but it needs to be moved with compassion. We must not presume. Then, of course, Eliphaz seems to show quite an insensitive side in other parts of chapter 5. And it seems really weird with his character, but I think he's really trying to get through to Job because he's really trying to wake him up. Job is, is continuing to sit there like he hasn't done anything wrong, and Eliphaz knows he must have done something wrong. So to try and shake him, he says in 5.4 that the children of an unrighteous fool are far from safety. They are crushed in the gate, and there is none to deliver them. Job has just lost his ten children. So Eliphaz is saying of Job that he is unrighteous, and his children therefore perished. Probably don't say that if your friend loses a child. Not very, not very kind. Well, Job replies to this sensitive friend in chapter 6. And He's not real great. He says, oh, that my vexations were weighed and all my calamity laid in the balance. It would be heavier than the sands of the sea. And then he goes on and all the way near to the end of the chapter in verse 24, Job says, okay, fine. Teach me and I'll be silent. Make me understand how I've gone astray. You're telling me I'm in this great wickedness and brought this on myself. Show me then. How forceful are your upright words. But what does reproof from you reprove? Do you think you can reprove the words when the speech of a despairing man is but wind? He would even cast lots over the fatherless and bargain over your friend. But now, be pleased to look at me, for I will not lie to your face. Please turn. Let no injustice be done. Turn now. My vindication is at stake. Is there any injustice on my tongue? Cannot my pellet discern the cause of calamity? Job basically says, thanks for your advice, but you're wrong. I'm innocent, and if I'm not, name my sin and I'll repent. But Eliphaz says nothing. In chapter 7, Job continues. In 7.7, he says, remember, my life is but a breath. Remember I told you last week the disease he had was terminal. He knew he was going to die. My life is at an end. What, 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 what motivation do I have to lie now? I'm about to die. We always say that, right? Great truth in someone's last words. My eye will never see good again. In verse 11 he says, Therefore I won't restrain my mouth. I will speak in the anguish of my spirit and I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. Verse 17, 16, sorry, of chapter 7, he says, I loathe my life. And, and in this interesting reflection that we find also in Psalm 8. In, in Psalm 8, it says, in a glorious, worshipful, praiseful psalm, the psalm that I read to that young fellow in the hospital. What is man that you are mindful of him? And the sons of man that you visited him. 
You have made him a little lower than the angels and have crowned him with glory and honor and have put all things under his feet. Job, in verse 17, says, What is man that you make so much of him and that you set your heart on him to visit him every morning and test him every moment? What the psalmist sees is beautiful. What is man that you are mindful of him and you have come to him and you have blessed him? Job sees as negative. What is man that you come to him and torment him? And then in verse 20, he says to God, What did I ever do to you, you watcher of mankind? Why have you made me your mark? That's quite an accusation to hurl at God. Not totally unsurprising in Job's case, but Eliphaz has failed. He hasn't revealed Job's sin. He hasn't found a reason for his suffering. And so Bildad steps up. Eliphaz tried to be comforting. Bildad is pretty insensitive. He comes across as harsh and heartless. He's the worst friend of the bunch this way, perhaps, and you don't want to be like Bildad. But Bildad responds to Job's challenge at the end here, when Job sort of throws the gauntlet down at God. And so Bildad's annoyed. And you know, it's it's good to be zealous for God's glory and to be annoyed when he is shamed. But remember, Job is in this tremendous suffering, and here is another lesson. With Eliphaz, he had a right at truth, but he applied it wrong. We need humility. For Bildad, he also has, I guess, a right inclination to defend God, but again, we're going to find he applies it poorly. So he says in 8 too, Oh, Job, how long will you say these things and the words of your mouth be like wind? Does God pervert justice? Consider, he suggests, the great wisdom of history. In verses 8 to 10, he kind of says, The wicked suffer and the righteous prosper. That's the way the world works. And then he concludes... Can papyrus grow where there is no marsh? This is an illustration from nature. Job, when when plants dry up, it's because they're not connected to the water supply. You're drying up because you're not connected to God. Your children must have deserved what happened to them. Such is the path of all who forget God. Nature's conclusion just simply demands it, Job. This is just the way it works. Verse 20. Behold, 8.20, God will not reject a blameless man, nor take the hand of evildoers. Hmm. You're a sinner. Job replies again in chapter 10 with his repeated refrain, I loathe my life. (laughs) These friends are not helping. I will give free utterance to my complaint. I will speak in the bitterness of my soul. And then in verse 2 he says, I'll say to God, Don't condemn me. Let me know why you contend against me. And then Job asks God a series of questions. In verse 3, he says, does it seem good to you to oppress me? In verse 4, have you any eyes? Do you see what's happening? Like a player calling out a referee in a sports field. In verse 14, if I sin, you watch me, and you do not acquit me of iniquity. If I am guilty, woe is me. Yet, if I am in the right, I cannot lift up my head. For I am filled with disgrace. He's challenging God. He says, God, if what he's saying is true, if, if, if the righteous prevail and the wicked suffer, and I'm suffering, then look at me. Where are your eyes? If I'm guilty, hold me in account. But I am innocent. So the wise mystic and the naturalist have both failed. So now comes Zophar. He's a different kind of philosophical dude. He's agnostic. He doesn't really know why this is happening to Job. Both the other guys were convinced it was because Job was so bad. 
Zophar is also convinced that Job's bad, but he has no idea if God is involved. That's the interesting part. So Job, he says in verse 4 of chapter 11, You say your doctrine is pure and you are clean in God's eyes. Oh, wouldn't it be great if God would speak and open his lips to you so he could tell you the secrets of his wisdom? Oh, oh, you're crying out to God, answer me, answer me, answer me. Wouldn't that be nice? We all know God's not going to talk to you. Can you find out the deep things of God? And then verse 11, he says, look, if God knows anything, he knows a worthless man. <laughs> he knows when he's seen iniquity. So won't he consider that? If God, you know, he's agnostic. He says, look, you're saying, God, God, answer my prayers. God's not going to answer you. But if he did, wouldn't he just see you're worthless? Wow. Very kind. And then in verse 13, he says, look, Job, look at yourself. Prepare your own heart. And if iniquity's in your hand, put it far away. And in verse 15, he says, you'll lift up your faith without blemish. It's all natural. It's all up to you. Take control of your own heart. Maybe go see a counselor. Work out your anger issues. <laughs> just sort of deal with yourself. So Eliphaz says, Job, be patient. This is simply discipline to get you past some sins. Discover and confess your sin, and God will bless you again. Bildad says, Job, this is justice. God is just. You're unjust. You deserve this. Your children were unjust. They deserved what came to them. But God's also merciful, so confess. Zophar says, ah, Job, you're a fool if you think you can figure any of this out. Just deal with yourself and move on. It's all karma. If you're good, sort of good things come to you. If you're bad, bad things come to you. It's really all about you. Well, Job doesn't really like this, but we can see in this that these are common responses even today, aren't they? Probably ones we've heard. Maybe ones we've given. And so Job sort of summarizes in chapter 12 what these guys have been saying to him, and he kind of just says, no doubt, 12-2, to the friends, you are the people, and wisdom will die with you. You know everything. But you know, I have a little understanding as well. I'm not that foolish. Who does not know such things as you brought up? I've heard all these before. I'm the wisest man in the East. And now I'm a laughingstock to my friends. I who called to God and he answered, a just and blameless man, I'm just a laughingstock. Going into chapter 13, he says at the beginning, Look, my eyes have seen all this. My ear has heard and understood it. What you know, I also know. I am not inferior to you. But, he says in verse 3, I would speak to the Almighty. And this is where the transition now happens. All right, guys. I'm not going to discuss this with you anymore. I already know everything that you brought up. You're wasting my time. You know who I need to talk to? I need God. I desire to argue my case with God, not with you. Look at verse 4. As for you, <laughs> you whitewash with lies. You're worthless positions, all of you. Oh, that you would just shut up, and it would be your wisdom. Now, hear my argument and listen to the pleadings on my lips. Will you speak falsely for God and speak deceitfully for him? Will you show partiality towards him? Will you plead the case for God? Will it be well with you when he searches you out? Ooh. Why take the speck out of your brother's eye when you don't notice the log in your own eye? With what judgment you judge, you will be judged. That's what Job is saying here. Can you deceive God as one deceives a man? He continues, verse 10, he will surely rebuke you. And at the end of the book, that's exactly what we find. Then Job says, look at my faith. Though God slay me, I will hope in him. I will argue my ways to his face. This will be my salvation, that the godless shall not come before me. 
He continues in verse 18. I have prepared my case, and I know I'll be in the right. So he begins to say, I can speak to God, and I know that I will stand before him, and I will be justified. But I, I have two requests. In verse 21, uh, or 20 and 21, Job says of God, Only grant me two things. Only grant me two things, God. I'll make a deal with you. Grant me two things. 21a, withdraw your hand from me. Stop the pain. Stop torturing me. And two, and let not the dread of you terrify me. Don't scare the living daylights out of me. You are the Almighty. Then he says in verse 22, God, call me and I'll answer. Or let me speak and you reply. How many are my sins? Make me know my transgression and my sin. Why do you hide your face and count me as an enemy? Why are good, bad things happening to this good person? Well, the friends don't like this, and so they come back with the central trouble in Job. Job has been arguing that I'm righteous, I'm righteous, I'm a good man. We all know he's human, though, so he's not perfect. But yet, he's good, he's good, he's upright, he's just. The friends have tried to pin this on him and saying, you're so wicked, so evil, there's something hidden. We've probably all seen the news about that popular international ministry and its leader who had a big moral falling. And we've said, wow, that was a shock. And many people around the world are shocked and hurt. And these guys are saying, Job, you're like that. We thought you were the man, but there's something deep and dark there. That's what they're saying. Job says, no, that's not the case. I'm human. I know that I can't really stand before God and live, but I know that he will give me ultimately salvation. Well, the friends jump back and pick up on that very point and say, okay, okay, maybe you're not that corrupt, but you're mortal, you're human, you're human. And so in chapter 15 and uh, oh, I just lost my place, sorry, one sec. Summarizing so fast and going through here. Skip that part and move on. Okay. Uh, uh, should be 15. And here. All right. So in chapter 15, then Eliphaz asks, in chapter four, uh, 15, verse 14, What is man that he can be pure? Or he that is born of woman that he can be righteous? Behold, God puts no trust even in his holy ones, and the heavens are not pure in his sight. How much less one who is abominable and corrupt, a man who drinks injustice like water. Or as Job puts it later, can a mortal man be in the right before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? The immortal beings of light who dwell in the heavens were condemned without hope of redemption for their one act of rebellion. So Eliphaz says, how much worse will it be for a mortal made of dust? Will mortal man succeed where the very gods have failed? No matter how good you are, Job, can mortal man be in the right before God? The psalmist said, behold, I was born, brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. People are sinners by nature and by choice. So even the good ones. How can they stand before God? That's the, the big transition of the book now. Are there good people? Are there good people? Well, the conversation goes back and forth, and this topic is explored a little bit until Job concludes, look, okay, I get that, I get that. 
And in chapter 9, we're kind of backing up to see Job speak in a couple different places here. In verse 33, Job says, Okay, you're right. Chapter 9, verse 32, God is not a man. God is not a man as I am, that I might answer him, that we should come to trial together. Can't work like that. Why? Verse 33, because there's no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on both of us. There's no go-between. There's no go-between. Job, you might be right. You might not be the wickedest man ever, but Job, you're mortal. How can you stand before God? All the way at the end of the book, in chapter 31, and verse 35, Job cries out, Oh, if only I had one that would listen to my side of the story, listen to my case. But Job will conclude that God is his only hope. God is the one who will listen to him. God is his only hope. So the wisdom has moved from this. Job, we all know from my great wisdom that only those who are wicked suffer interminably and the good receive blessing. So it works. You must be a sinner. Come on, Job. Be patient. This is God punishing you. It will turn out for the good in the end. Bildad says, hey, Job, this is natural justice. You did bad. Now you're getting bad. Their friend says, who knows, Job, but it's, it's kind of karma. Just be a good guy. And then Job says, look, I'm innocent. I'm innocent. I'll tell that to God. I'll tell that to God. And then they say, but you're mortal. You can't stand before God. Who do you think you are? Even the angels in heaven were condemned. And here's Job's ultimate answer. Chapter 20, verse 25. Back one page. Nineteen, verse twenty-five. Nineteen twenty-five. Job says, "I know that my redeemer lives, and in the last, he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has all been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another." My heart faints within me. I'm terrified of this. But if you say, how will we pursue him? And the root of the matter is found in him? Then be afraid. Be afraid. For wrath brings the punishment. That you may know there is a judgment. Job says, okay, I get it. I am mortal. You're right. My flesh is going to be destroyed. But I know something you don't know. After my flesh has been destroyed... After this terminal disease has run its course, I'll stand before my creator. He believed in the resurrection and the life everlasting. And he says, and I know that my redeemer lives, my redeemer, the one who will redeem me, the one who will be the arbiter, the one who will stand in my place, the one who will plead my case. And I will see him when I see God. It's very small in here, but what a tremendous word of faith. Job understood that God would be the ultimate answer to his question. The book goes through these cycles in order to show that we don't have all the answers here on earth. The answers are with God. The problem in going to God is that we're mortal. 
We are born in sin. God cannot bear sin. And Job recognizes that problem and says, well, what am I going to do? And he comes to the only conclusion he can, and that is, you know what? God is going to be my redeemer. Pretty amazing. So these are Job's concluding statements. This is what he concludes for himself, and what we can take as a take-home is how to comfort others. What do we do? Where do we turn now? When we're with that friend who suffers and says to me, I just want it to be over. When we're with that friend that says, I don't want to die, I'm terrified. That which I fear has come upon me, the two different responses. How do we respond to that? Job says to us that this is the advice we should give. First, turn away from human thinking. It might be valuable to have a discussion around these points, but you will not find the answer in human thinking. Job 28, 12. But where shall wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? Man does not know its worth, and it is not to be found in the land of the living. That really gets back to what I already said about Eliphaz. He had right truths, but he didn't know how to apply them. Even when we know some truth, we don't know everything. Humility is called for us. Turn away from human thinking. We can certainly say, as the New Testament does, sometimes we suffer, as First Peter, the reader, did today, in the will of God. And when we do, we need to entrust ourselves to a faithful creator. So point one we can do is turn away from human thinking and say, okay, turn to God, turn to God. And the first thing we do in that is to repent. I know that I'm only human. I know that I must have sinned. I'll repent. I'm a sinner. I struggle with sins every day. I fall into sins. You do too. And we need to know that as we approach God, we, we need to be that way. But we don't need to think in terms of human wisdom. Bad things do happen to seemingly good people. That's the way this world works. So we turn away from human thinking. We turn to God. Job says in Job 28, 23, God understands the way to it. He knows the place of wisdom. He looks to the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. God has all the answers. Human wisdom doesn't have the answers. God does. Eliphaz would have been right to say, we know this to be generally true. We don't know why this is happening to you, but God does, Job. Turn to him. Bildad could rightly have said, look, nature teaches us that we need to make sure we're connected to the source in order to be healthy. Are you connected to God? I don't know the answer, but you may wish to turn to him. Even our last guy, we can have with him and say, look, uh, we, we don't know the answers. But you know what? Turn to God. Turn to God. All those are great, appropriate responses, and that's what the friends should have done. But then, of course, we realize that turning to God means that mortal man must stand before the Almighty on the day of judgment, which Job concluded at the end of 19. So be afraid, be afraid. Job 28, 28, fascinating verse says, And he said, as God said to man, Behold the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to turn away from evil, that is understanding. You might recognize that. We see that in the Proverbs, right? We see that in Ecclesiastes. This is one of the core maxims of wisdom literature. This is the essence. We went through a whole forest today in real rapid pace. I hope you picked up enough to make it useful. But we got right here to the tree that matters. Fear the Lord, that is wisdom. Turn away from evil, that is understanding. That's all we're going to understand. You're suffering. Come with compassion. So your friend is suffering. Come with compassion. Come with compassion. I care for you. God cares for you. 
I don't know the answers to why you're suffering. If you'd like to talk about some things, we can talk about it. There are some things you may wish to consider. But in the end, we need to turn together to God. Let's pray together. Let's seek God. Fear the Lord. That's where wisdom is to be found. Find God. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this very real book of very real suffering that helps us to see that the Christian faith and that the scriptures are not written just to happy people living happy lives where everything is awesome, but to people who are struggling with all the real problems that there are in the world and that we don't need to be hopeless even in that day. Even when all the wisdom we can think of around us fails, every day we, we live by practical wisdom. The day comes and it fails, Lord, and when that day comes, we only have you. Help us to turn to you even at the beginning so that as we seek practical wisdom, we do so in the fear of you. Help us to seek you in the day that our wisdom fails because we know that true wisdom is found, begins and continues to be found in the fear of you. And help us to turn away from evil because that is the one thing we can be absolutely certain of that you wish us to do at any time of any day in our lives. We think and pray for those who are deeply impacted by that fallen ministry. And we pray that those who have been hurt would be comforted in you. That's a perfect example, Lord, of something we can't understand why it happened. But we can trust you. We can trust that you are good and that you are wise and that you understand. We don't know what's happening in Alberta today with all the things going on with this pandemic. But we know that you are good and that we can entrust ourselves to you as our faithful creator. We know that even if some disease, this or another one, should ravage our bodies and we should die, that in our flesh we will see you and you will be our redeemer. You will redeem us from this body of death. You will redeem us from sin through Jesus Christ our Lord who lives and reigns with you.